Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. I am your host, Joe Alcock, and this is a late January 2019 version of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. It's been a while since I checked in, and a lot has happened since then. Um, most notably was the conference, the international conference on evolutionary medicine that I uh, helped put together as the program chair, and that was in Park City, Utah. And there was enough material to fill days, if not weeks, of podcasts. And uh, we do have video of some of those lectures that we hope to get out into the world. So stay tuned, uh, and we may be able to get the audio versions of at least some of those talks up on the Evolution Medicine podcast. But for this January, this lovely January day in 2019, I'm going to talk about a paper that I published in late August of last year. And uh, the topic was sepsis. And the name of the paper is perhaps provocatively titled, The Emperor Has No Clothes? Question mark. Searching for Dysregulation in Sepsis. And so this is published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine. And it pertains to uh, the question, as I see it, as to the basic definition of sepsis. And sepsis, for those who may not be too familiar with the concept, has traditionally been looked at as a response, the body's response to an overwhelming infection. And uh, built into the definition, kind of remarkably, is the idea of dysregulation. The definition has dysregulation built into it. And I'll, I may as well just give you that definition right now. Sepsis is defined as a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. I disagree. And so the paper is essentially a response to this definition and a review of the literature to see whether the findings and the major experimental work on sepsis, whether it comports to this idea of a dysregulated state. But let's back up a little bit. Uh, I was reading a nature immunology paper a few days ago, and um, what they did in this paper, among other things, was they, they took bacterial products, so this is endotoxin, so this is the cell wall constituent of a gram-negative bacteria. It's highly lethal if you inject it in moderate to high doses into mammals. But in this study, they actually found some human volunteers, and they injected about four nanograms per kilogram of human endo, uh, of endotoxin into these human volunteers. And lo and behold, when they drew blood and they looked at the changes of, that were happening at the cellular level in the blood, so they looked at white blood cell gene transcription, they discovered that over 2,000 genes undergo a change in expression uh, when, when confronted with these bacterial products. Changes in immune transduction and cytokine production. Don't want to bore you here, but things like NF-kappa-B, IL-6, IL-1, and even anti-inflammatory signaling like IL-10. Uh, but then a whole bunch of other genes changed expression in these white cells of these human volunteers. So a whole bunch of genes that are responsible for metabolism, apoptosis, uh, genes associated with mitochondrial function or quote-unquote, dysfunction. A whole bunch of stuff changes. And this isn't true just in white blood cells. 
if we were to do a muscle biopsy or even a brain biopsy, you know, God forbid, and look at the change in gene, gene expression when we discover endotoxin in the, in the blood, there, we're going to find gene expression changes in a huge number of body tissues. And like I mentioned, it's not just, not just inflammation, which is what we typically think of as being uh, the issue with um, when we're confronted with a potentially pathogenic bacteria or its products in, in the blood. So in other words, um, you know, we, we use animal models using endotoxin as a model for sepsis because in sepsis, bacteria and their products gain access to the bloodstream. Uh, and it's not uncommon to find endotoxin in the blood if there's a gram-negative bacterial infection at the root cause of sepsis. All these things are happening in our bodies. And meanwhile, at the, you know, at bedside, when we're looking at a patient with sepsis, with actual sepsis, we'll discover that the patient has a fever. The patient has a high heart rate, a high respiratory rate. The brain may not be working normally and the, and the patient may be confused. Um, the blood pressure can be low. There's a whole bunch of things that we're, that we're going to measure. Um, when we send off blood tests, we often find that the calcium is low. We often find the white blood cell count is high. We find that the lactate in the blood is high. And it's true that for, for virtually every one of these things, in terms of changes in gene expression, changes in physiology, most people, when they look at sepsis, they see this as being all negative and harmful. And all these changes participating in the syndrome that ends up killing people. So this is a very real kind of high stakes phenomenon. We find that um, now sepsis is common. There are tens of thousands of people that develop sepsis nationwide, um, many of whom go on to die. So this is, this is a, a real deal. Students of sepsis have been intrigued by this and kind of horrified by, by the, the findings of sepsis, um, in part because we don't have any great treatments for it. And it looks like the body is essentially just undergoing a massive self-destruction. As I mentioned, dysregulation or self-destruction is built into the definition of sepsis. It's also built into virtually every single funded grant that goes into sepsis. So I'm going to quote here from a paper by uh, Krizalik and Alverdi. And this was published in Critical Care Medicine 2017. And they talk about the NIH grant home. So what is the NIH grant home? NIH grant home is the body of funded grants. And many of them end up, of course, being published. And so they mentioned of the NIH grant home of sepsis, if you look at the whole body of research work in sepsis, with no exception, every funded grant is based on this, what they call the immunocentric theory of sepsis. That is that the immune system is going, going awry and is dysregulated in sepsis. And they go on to write that every grant carries the, the promise that blockade of a pathway or a molecule is going to improve the outcome of human sepsis. But they say, in order for this immunocentric view to prevail, the cause of death from sepsis must be believed to be due to the response itself and not the inciting pathogen. So this is, they just gave a, a brief and concise description of the way most people think about sepsis. That is, it's you. It's not your microbes. It's not the pathogens. You are the problem with sepsis. And as I quote in the uh, paper that I wrote, I have a quotation from Walt Kelly, who uh, famously wrote, we have met the enemy and he is us. 
So the question is, is that really true? Is it really true that when it comes to sepsis or overwhelming infection, that we are the problem, that we are our own worst enemy? Is that really true? When we go back and take a look at all those changes in gene expression, are every one of those uh, changes some sort of bizarre self-mutilation, self-harm, um, a suicide pact that we have that regulates all the genes in our bodies that um, happens during sepsis? I think it's pretty unlikely. Um, I mean, for that to be true, we'd have to argue that, that what we're viewing as sepsis didn't occur in our evolutionary past and that uh, organisms never survived sepsis. They all went on to die. And so it was uh, any, any response was uh, in a selection shadow, uh, let's say, with regard to uh, natural selection. So that's not likely. I think that it's far likelier to think when it comes to sepsis that we in modern life are confronted with overwhelming infection. And many times we survive it. And we survive it in part because of our the arsenal of immune defenses and changes that happen in our bodies. And it's not just us. This would have been true for our immediate ancestors who lived in an era without intensive care unit and modern medicine and even antibiotics. It's true for our close relatives, other great apes that get sick and, and have infection and can suffer something like sepsis. Uh, it's true for, you know, virtually every mammal. Um, and a, just a wide swath of life on the planet can exhibit something that looks like sepsis. It's hard to imagine that a common, often lethal, but not always lethal condition would leave us woefully maladapted to that phenomenon. I just think that if we take, this is an area where if we just take a tiny bit of evolutionary logic and look at the problem of sepsis, it doesn't make sense that we are always the problem. It would make far more sense that we would have various adaptations to cope with life-threatening challenges um, because by definition, lethal sepsis is a, um, you know, has, is salient when it comes to fitness. It's, it makes a difference whether we live or die. And the responses that, that we bring to the table with our immune system have a great deal to do with whether uh, one of our ancestors or ourselves is going to continue to survive and have an impact on our own reproductive success. Okay, so um, Alverdi and Krizalik, this, this quotation about the NIH grand tome, they are critical of the idea that uh, the, this immunocentric view of, se of sepsis. I am also critical of it, and I'm critical of it, I think, from a slightly different reason. And that reason is that it would be paradoxical, I think, for every one of our uh, immune and other responses to sepsis to be maladaptive. I just don't see that as being a likely outcome of uh, biology or evolution on this planet, given what we know about evolution. But that's not what, that's not how medicine operates. And that's not how uh, the current research agenda when it comes to sepsis operates. So why is that? I think we can go back to at least 1913 when Sir William Osler, who was hugely influential in the development of modern medicine. He suggested that when it came to infection, that death resulted from a host response rather than the underlying pathogen. So this idea has legs. It goes back a long ways. It goes back to at least Sir William Osler. Now, as I mentioned, the Oslerian hypothesis, that it's the host response and not the pathogen, that's built into this current definition. I'll just repeat it. This is from JAMA 2016. This is the third international consensus definition for sepsis. 
otherwise known as sepsis-3. This group came up with a definition, and they say sepsis is defined as a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. So organs fail or don't work normally, and that is because of a dysregulated, maladaptive, harmful, life-threatening host response. So at this point, I think that it's worthwhile to take a step back and ask the question, was Osler right? Is sepsis a maladaptive, dysregulated response? Or, in fact, is sepsis a regulated, adaptive state? And when it comes to dysfunction, it's also worth looking to, to find out, well, which domain of human physiology or the immune response, which, which is the part which is dysregulated? Can we pin it down? Can we figure out, well, which part is, is the dysregulated bit and therefore uh, turn that part off and improve outcomes in sepsis? If that's been the driving idea with sepsis, we'd expect that after many decades of research, we might have something to show for this approach. Using our, our time machine, and we can go back a little bit in time and look to see how this paradigm of dysregulation, how it's shaped research, and how uh, many of these research studies have come out. So I'm going to turn now to a paper that was published in the mid-90s by Zenny and colleagues. This is in Critical Care Medicine. And this paper was titled Anti-Inflammatory Therapies to Treat Sepsis and Septic Shock, a Reassessment. So even in the mid-90s, which is when I was in medical school, so it doesn't seem like all that long ago in terms of my life, but of course it was over 20 years. And they reviewed anti-inflammatory agents in septic shock. So recall that if we think that the immune response is the problem, and the problem of sepsis is excessive inflammation, and immune cells gone amok, creating what's called a cytokine storm, which is a maladaptive, dysregulated state, then it would make sense, according to these researchers, that we could develop, using molecular biology and, and modern techniques, we could develop therapies to target this dysregulated immune response. And so there was a great deal of success, at least in terms of coming up with experimental therapies. There were antibodies to cytokines, like IL-1, uh, alpha. There were, um, there were antibodies developed towards platelet activating factor, which was thought to cause excessive inflammation and coagulation. Antibodies to tumor necrosis factor, or TNF. There were antibodies to the soluble TNF receptor. There were anti-prostaglandin therapies, and the, and the main one being ibuprofen. The, these authors, they list therapies at least in one, two, three, four, five, six, six different domains um, involving uh, over a dozen different individual trials that included, these are human trials, that had um, pretty big enrollment. We're looking at all, basically over a thousand individuals in each arm. So these are randomized controlled trials. The bottom line is that every single one of these trials failed to improve outcomes. Nowhere did they find any clue that inhibiting inflammation made people better. And in fact, it was suggested that um, even if you lumped them all together, there was no, no clue that, um, that inhibiting inflammation improved outcomes in sepsis. This is back in the 90s. So with my background in evolutionary biology when I was in med school, and the idea that I had that I was going to bring some of these evolutionary ideas into medicine, that was my goal at the time, I was 
actually excited when I read this. I, I, read, I remember doing a, a project describing to my med student peers uh, something about um, progress in sepsis. And I came to the conclusion then that, well, maybe the reason why these, these studies are all failures is because some of these inflammatory processes are indeed critical, absolutely necessary in mounting an appropriate response to overwhelming infection. So we're not looking at necessarily a dysregulated, self-destructive disaster. We're looking at an utmost all-out response that um, is needed. And in fact, if we get in the way, we can cause problems. So that was, that was an idea that I developed about the time this paper came out in the late 90s. Then I went on to go into residency training, and I brought some of these ideas with me. And I remember discussing them with Howard Levy, who was the attending in the emergency department. I'm sorry, in the intensive care unit at the time. Um, and uh, I remember Howard. Uh, he, Howard Levy said to me at the time, well, Joe, uh, that, that's, a, that's a nice idea, but uh, it turns out that you're wrong. And he said, you're wrong because there are several trials coming out, each of which show that by inhibiting or blocking various parts of the host response, we're going to make things better in sepsis. So I thought, well, maybe he, maybe he knows something I don't. And in fact, um, a Nature article by Jonathan Cohen, published in 2002, um, cataloged some of the what was thought to be a success at the time. There were four papers that came out in 2001 and 2002. And... Um, this guy, Dr. Jonathan Cohen, he wrote, in the last 12 months, several clinical trials have finally shown that it's possible to reduce mortality in patients with sepsis. So that's exciting. And the paper was titled The Immunopathogenesis of Sepsis. And he highlighted four trials. One was by Bernard uh, in 2001, and that was the prowess uh, paper uh, or trial that had to do with a medicine called activated protein C, which we we'll talk about a bit more. One was by Vandenberg, and this was in the New England Journal in 2001. It had to do with uh, carefully controlling blood sugars with insulin. There was the famous Rivers trial in 2001, in which Emmanuel Rivers and colleagues uh, showed that by normalizing a bunch of and physiologic features and, and supposedly improving oxygen delivery to patients with sepsis that we could make them better. And then finally, there was the Anon trial in 2002 that had to do with giving low-dose hydrocortisone. So I have to say that my, my reaction was one of um, you know interest that all of a sudden there was some success in this area. But also, I was, I was hugely skeptical. I thought that, that it was unlikely that... Uh, all of these kinds of interventions would be um, useful in sepsis. And it turns out that my skepticism was well-placed because all four of these articles cited in this Nature review have subsequently been overturned, all four of them. And I'll, I'll get into it in a little bit. So you know, earlier in this podcast, I mentioned that it was necessary to, uh, if, if there's dysregulation in sepsis, it's worthwhile to pinpoint where that dysregulation is. And as I mentioned, researchers and physicians both have looked at a, at a variety of different places for where the dysregulation is. Um, certainly, we can measure what looks like organ failure, things like kidneys that aren't working. Um, we can look, we can cite uh, 
supposed problems like adrenal insufficiency, where the adrenal gland doesn't make enough glucocorticoids. Uh, we worry about blood vessels losing the capacity to uh, maintain muscle tone, in which case blood pressure goes down. We see all sorts of hematological problems, um, and we target some of these by giving transfusions. Uh, the heart um, seems to not pump as well, and so therefore we give medications to increase the contractility of the heart. Um, the lungs uh, show a variety of different problems, and historically we've intubated people and given large tidal volumes to replicate quote-unquote normal function. Um, the brain uh, has been a, a target in a couple of ways. One in which um, if, if people don't respond to therapies, we sedate and intubate and paralyze uh, our patients. And of course, the immune system. So we've done, a, there's been a, a you know, plethora. I mentioned those 12 initial trials. There, since then, there have been a multitude of trials targeting different areas of our immune system. So where, where is it? Where is the dysregulation? Is it everywhere? I'm going to back up and we're going to focus just for the next few minutes on coagulation. And this is going to be a, a little bit of a um, review for people that are longtime listeners of this podcast. We've talked about Zygris. Uh, Zygris is activated protein C. This is a medication that was approved by the FDA uh, about when I finished my training. It's one of the papers that Howard Levy was talking about. And in fact, it's one of those papers that was that that has been the subject of medical reversal um, in that Nature article that I talked about. But why did people think that activated protein C was a useful target in sepsis? Well, it kind of made sense. Researchers noticed that among patients with sepsis, activated protein C, which participates to kind of counteractivate um, part of the coagulation cascade uh, as part of normal, normal human physiology, that patients with sepsis had low levels of activated protein C. Patients who died had even lower levels of activated protein C than those that survived. So certain researchers, they decided, well, maybe activated protein C is a deficiency syndrome, and we can make these patients better by giving them activated protein C and bringing it back up to the normal level. And in doing so, that they proposed it would have beneficial impacts on both coagulation by um, essentially blocking some of the supposedly dysregulated coagulation that happens in sepsis, and also that it might have some benefits when it comes to inflammation. So all well and good. And in fact, the prowess study by Bernard and colleagues published in 2001 showed an absolute mortality reduction of 6% in sepsis. So this was the first, and I should say it's the first and only paper that showed a benefit an immune modulating benefit when it come for, for an agent that went on to get FDA approval. So remarkable result suggesting you needed to only treat about 17 people to get one benefit. And the, and the study was reasonably big. It had 1,690 patients enrolled. And because of this paper, the FDA went ahead and approved activated protein C, brand name Zygris. So Zygris was approved in 2001, but it was a 10 to 10 split vote when it came to the FDA. And it was split because uh, the FDA regulators were a bit skeptical to rely on a single trial. Um, but it was hard to disagree with the profound mortality reduction and the, the number needed to treat. 
So it was, it was decided that, that this, this medication would be approved. Um, but there was a recommendation to, to continue and look at different subgroups of sepsis, again, to figure out, well, who are the people that are going to benefit most from this drug? But almost immediately, there were some red flags that were raised um, by this. And one had to do with the fact that there was an amendment and a change of course midstream in the middle of this big trial that had these remarkable results. And it turns out that all the benefit happened after the amendment, after, happened after the investigators made some changes to their exclusion criteria and also some changes to the drug and the placebo themselves. So if you looked at the mortality before the amendment, there was very little difference. But the mortality after the amendment was kind of high. And this is not kosher. This is not normal. This is not good, good uh, study hygiene. And this is not the way that things are usually done in, uh, at least done well in science. So it was a big red flag. Even bigger red flag was the fact that a subsequent large trial called the ADDRESS trial looked at Zygris for patients with severe sepsis who were deemed uh, at lower risk of death. So not, not the ones at death's door. But if this was such a great drug, it should work for everybody, right? Well, the ADDRESS trial showed that indeed it does not. It doesn't, it, there was no benefit to patients with a, a lower risk of death. These are patients with, with severe sepsis. And in fact, Eli Lilly then um, did an analysis of the subgroup of patients who had undergone surgery and discovered that surgical patients actually did worse. The mortality was higher if you had sepsis after surgery. So that was no longer an indication. So now we've gone from a drug which is useful for all sepsis, uh, but we don't want to use it for the people that are maybe not at super high risk of death. Definitely don't want to use it for patients that have undergone surgery. And another large trial um, looked at Zygris for children, a pediatric sepsis trial. Um, lo and behold, um, this study was stopped early. It was stopped early because it didn't show any likelihood of showing a benefit. And in fact, there was um, a couple of um, safety concerns when it came to the pediatric drug. Uh, same drug, Zygris. But in kids, there, was, there were significant bleeding events noted, but also... Um, there was a suggestion that uh, the other adverse events um, were, were going to be problematic in the, um, for the study drug. So can't use it in kids, can't use it in people with low risk of death, can't use it in surgical patients. Who can you use it for? Meanwhile, um, and there were some grumblings, I remember grumblings even in my own department about this, uh, people thinking, well, maybe, maybe this medicine just doesn't work. Meanwhile, the drug manufacturer, Eli Lilly, hired a consultant called Belsito Communications. And Belsito Communications came up with a multi-pronged approach to encourage doctors to prescribe Zygris. And Zygris was an expensive drug. Um, so simultaneously, Belsito uh, came up with a supposedly grassroots organization to decry rationing in critical care, to raise awareness of sepsis. And they also were... Uh, had a hand in the formation of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. And the Surviving Sepsis Campaign was initially, uh, came about, uh, at least in part, to help sell Zygris. And the marketing materials from Belsito actually show this, that one of their main goals, I'll just, I'll just quote it, quote it, this is from a published paper um, in Critical Care Medicine, 2007. 
Belsito, the company, initiated a wide-ranging media outreach program to raise awareness of rationing severe sepsis and, as a result, generate demand for Zygris. <clears throat> so, essentially, the surviving sepsis campaign and a lot of our what we think of as being evidence-based protocols for treating sepsis had their origin in a pharmaceutical company's marketing arm. Um, this, I think, is a meaningful and important area, even though surviving sepsis campaign, although it continues, is no longer affiliated with Eli Lilly. So what was the upshot of all this? Well, the European Medica Medicines Agency, the EMA, they noted that no further study had ever confirmed the efficacy of the single pivotal trial, and they requested a, large, a new large trial. So this is back in 2009. Well, that large trial was performed in 2010-2011, published in May of 2012, and this was the prowess shock study. So they went back and they said, well, if it doesn't work for all these other people, we're just going to look for the people with the absolute highest risk of death. And certainly this medication that um, should work for those patients. But in fact, it did not. And so a paper that came out, um, a contemporary of this result uh, in December of 2012, uh, was titled Zygris's Epitaph. I never worked a day in my life. Mortality in the Zygris group um, was actually non-significantly higher uh, compared to placebo. And at 90 days, there really was no difference between mortality in the two groups. So the medication simply didn't work. It took 10 years for us to figure that out. Um, but that promising nature paper that identified these, these one this keystone moment of a FDA-approved drug for, for uh, sepsis, uh, turns out that it was all illusory. And most people don't know this now. Like, I'm aware of it because I had an interest, and I thought, well, maybe sepsis is a bit misunderstood. That was an idea that I had back in medical school. Um, but others, there, there's, there's a collective amnesia in it when it comes to sepsis and medical training. If you ask a medical student or trainee now, they're not going to know anything about this drug. But the fact that it didn't work and the fact that it failed so spectacularly is meaningful. It's meaningful that this medication didn't work. It's meaningful that the only FDA drug ever approved for sepsis that targeted the host response doesn't work. And it's meaningful because it means that there's something wrong with the thinking process, the disease itself, and, there's, and the underlying conception that, that sepsis is uh, dysregulated, I think it needs to be called into question with these results. But as I mentioned, there were four studies, not just this one. So the other one had to do with blood sugar. And I mentioned earlier that some of the genes that are supposedly dysregulated in sepsis have to do with metabolism. In effect, we see massive stress hyperglycemia. Blood sugars can, kind of, can go extremely high in some patients. We see this in our own patients in the ER. I see it at the bedside. Um, I, what I teach my students is that this is a stress hyperglycemia that is not necessarily a bad thing. We don't need to intervene aggressively. But according to a paper published in 2001 in the New England Journal, this is the Vandenberg study, they thought that, uh, in fact, they showed in this paper that that one could accomplish a mortality reduction by carefully controlling blood sugar, not allowing people to have very, very high blood sugars. They enrolled 1,548 patients. They showed 
percent mortality in the group that was subjected to this careful control with insulin versus eight percent. Okay, great, that's good. But again, we probably shouldn't, based on, especially with the first one, we shouldn't necessarily change our clinical practice based on a single study. So to their credit, a much larger study was undertaken. This was the NICE sugar study in which glucose and glucose management was uh, carefully looked at. And this study published in 2009, uh, the paper was titled Intensive versus Conventional Glucose Control in Critically Ill Patients. They enrolled 6,000 patients. Lo and behold, they found more mortality in the patients who were carefully controlled with insulin, 27.5% versus 24.9%. That is higher mortality when people were made normal with insulin. Maybe there's a benefit to being abnormal in sepsis. So this is the, this is the, the, two, the second paper of four cited in that nature review. The second paper here goes under. It, it failed to improve outcomes. And, and in fact, the, the uh, Vandenberg paper was overturned by the subsequent paper. And this remains the case. Um, this paper, this result stands. This is in 2009. And thankfully, this has been also replicated in children. Uh, Agus and colleagues, a paper published um, just a couple of years ago, again in the New England Journal, uh, titled Tight Glycemic Control in Critically Ill Patients. This was stopped early for harm. Uh, among the 713 critically ill patients enrolled in this, in this paper and study, uh, it, there was a sign of increased adverse effects, including increased um, secondary infections in the patients that were treated with intensive insulin. So intensive insulin does not work or normalizing blood sugar does not work to make people better in adults or in kids as, uh, as shown here. So that second paper with Vandenberg, we got to toss that in the trash can. Um, that's two out of four that have been reversed. How about the third one? This is the reverse trial. So again, listeners to this podcast know that we've talked about the Rivers trial. We've talked about the result that Emmanuel Rivers at Wayne State University um, popularized back in 2001 with this New England Journal paper. The idea is that uh, we could accomplish something called early goal-directed therapy. This is quantitatively trying to normalize a variety of patient parameters uh, with the goal of maximizing and normalizing oxygen and blood flow delivery to tissues because that was thought to be the underlying problem in sepsis. So Rivers Group, they did a whole bunch of things all at once to try to make it better. And as listeners to this podcast know, we've talked about the fact that this result has, has gone away. Um, we, uh, the, the whole early goal-directed therapy that involved putting central lines in people, at least initially involved giving people Zygris, it involved giving people massive uh, fluid boluses to um, target a certain central venous pressure. Um, it involved giving blood cells to maximize hemoglobin, um, dobutamine if the uh, perfusion wasn't adequate, etc. Um, this targeted quantitative early goal-directed therapy has been overturned by three massive trials done in three different continents. Uh, and those were the process trial, the PROMISE trial, and the RISE trial um, done in North America, uh, Europe, and Australia, and New Zealand. Um, actually, I actually don't remember which one's which at this point. The bottom line is they all have the exact same result, and that is that doing early goal-directed therapy didn't work to make people better. As an aside, I should notice that 
in response to um, changes in the definition of sepsis with that sepsis 3 and in response to, to the failure of early goal-directed therapy, uh, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign came out with a statement, and this was in, uh, in 2016 after um, some of the first large uh, trials. Uh, actually, all three of the, those, these large trials have been published in the New England Journal. And they said that screening and treatment of patients with sepsis, and I quote here, should continue essentially has been previously recommended by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. And they, rec- they, say, they go on to say that ensuring the three-hour bundle elements, so bundled care, that is combination care, which was based in large part on this early goal-directed therapy, uh, that has been ensuring that, it, that these elements have been initiated continues to be a priority. So again, some old ideas seem to die hard. And I would say that one of the ideas that is the most durable and the most difficult to overturn is this idea of dysregulation. Because if you think this, things are dysregulated, that gives you permission to intervene and to try to block different host pathways. But as we'll see, that, um, that strategy in sepsis has been not just a failure, an unbelievable failure. All right, so just to recap, we've, we've talked about the three uh, randomized controlled trials, all of which have been overturned. The fourth one is the Anon trial. And this was published in JAMA in 2002. And this, this paper was titled, The Effective Treatment with Low Doses of Hydrocortisone and Fludrocortisone on Mortality in Patients with Septic Shock. And, and, and this is in JAMA 2002. And I put an asterisk next to this one because, in my mind, it's been entirely overturned. Um, but there remains some debate about this one. So, listeners to this podcast know that Coffee Brown and I have talked in great detail about a trial that came out in early 2018 uh, called the adrenal trial the adrenal trial was published in the new england journal march 1st 2018 and the paper was the, the formal paper is adjunctive glucocorticoid therapy in patients with septic shock this is and remains the largest the biggest the best and most carefully constructed trial with with an eye towards eliminating various sources of bias um, ever conducted uh, it enrolled 3658 patients that is more patients than every previous steroid trial in sepsis combined. So a huge patient sample. It involved 69 intensive care units in five different countries. This is not a single center trial. This was a multi-center trial, about as multi as you can get. The bottom line of the adrenal trial, giving steroids to patients doesn't help. There was no difference in survival at 90 days uh, compared to placebo. A subsequent paper published in the New England Journal looked at five-month survival and found no difference there too. So giving people steroids doesn't help them with in-hospital survival, doesn't help them with 28-day survival, doesn't help them with 90-day survival, doesn't help them with five-month survival, simply doesn't help. Unfortunately, despite the fact that, that the adrenal trial didn't show a mortality benefit, there are those, including Paul Merrick and others, who still argue that there may be some benefit under certain circumstances to giving steroids. So it's still something which is given. I've seen it given in my ER. And it's still something which is studied and is the subject of research. In my book, Adrenal, Adrenal Trial closes the book on steroids and sepsis. We shouldn't give it. But enough confusion exists in the literature and enough countervailing results 
exist that some people still think it may be worthwhile to do it. Unfortunately, I don't think that we're gonna see any more large scale studies ever because it's gonna be hard to do better than the adrenal trial. Okay, so we have these four major studies that in combination show that one, blocking the dysfunctional coagulation cascade with Zygros doesn't benefit patients. Two, blocking dysregulated metabolism with insulin and normalizing blood sugars doesn't make people better. Three, normalizing supposedly dysregulated oxygen delivery and organ dysfunction in the Rivers trial with early goal-directed therapy, that doesn't actually benefit patients. And then finally, interfering with supposed dysregulated inflammation and the deficiency state of adrenals that are not making enough glucocorticoids, we know that that strategy also doesn't seem to work. So at this point, we can go back to the Osler hypothesis. Do we see any evidence of dysfunction from these domains? The answer is no. All the strategies that have been based on the Osler hypothesis of dysfunction have led to failure and medical reversal. So it's time to go back and take a second look at the dysfunction hypothesis. Before we go there, it's worth kind of pointing out that I'm not the only one to say this. As I mentioned, Alverdi and Krizalik, they more or less articulate the exact same position. John Marshall, in a paper published in Trends in Molecular Medicine 2014, he wrote that more than 100 randomized clinical trials have tested the hypothesis that modulating the septic response to infection can improve survival. With one short-lived exception, none of these has resulted in new treatments. None has resulted in new treatments. None. That's none, zero, nil, zilch, nada, nothing. If this research agenda was so successful, we should have had some major successes since then. We really haven't. There are no new treatments for sepsis. So the different biological modifiers in sepsis that Marshall looked at, the endotoxin pathway that I alluded to early on, uh, interleukins and cytokine approaches, platelet activating factors, eicosanoids, nitric oxide inhibitors, the hypercoagulability pathway, all this different stuff. Every single strategy that's been looked at in sepsis has not worked. Again, this is meaningful. This is not just, oh, we'll start from scratch and we'll try a different thing. The cumulative failure of this approach has, I think, rightly led some to write that we need to do a reappraisal, a reassessment, et cetera, when it comes to sepsis. The reassessment, I think, is the most, most salient and most important is to say, you know what? Maybe sepsis is not maladaptive. Maybe sepsis, the response is not dysregulated. Maybe the regulation, the, the changes and shifts in the physiology, maybe those are there because they have tended to increase survival and tended to increase the ability to cope with these infectious challenges during our evolutionary history. That would explain why it is that most multicellular organisms, uh, especially mammals, exhibit what a recognizable syndrome of sepsis. So what exactly do we do? And I think that I'm gonna spend maybe the next couple of minutes with this, talking about the latest and greatest, brand new, exciting area of sepsis. And this has to do with another supposed deficiency state in sepsis, and that is vitamin C. So just like protein C, we've noticed, we, when I say we, I mean other researchers have noticed that vitamin C levels plummet in patients with sepsis, just like activated protein C. This deficiency state um, represents some 
inherent constraint in our ability to manufacture vitamin C, which is why humans have a risk of getting scurvy. And in fact, some people have drawn the parallels between scurvy and sepsis with the concept that we humans are perhaps are uniquely dysregulated in terms of our vitamin C um, and that we can, we can do better than nature if we uh, restore supposed physiologic levels of vitamin C. So again, the logic is just like every other thing in, in sepsis. We see a change, we try to push it back towards what looks like a healthy person. Uh, we postulate that there's some pathological state, a deficiency of vitamin C. And uh, Paul Merrick and others uh, published a provocative paper in which they did a before and after study, and they showed, at least in their single center, that people did better if they were given combination therapy. So even though combination therapy has failed in early goal-directed therapy, it's been proposed that vitamin C should be given with a little bit of hydrocortisone and a little bit of thiamine, and that would be the best way perhaps to improve sepsis outcomes. So they, they showed something that looked plausible and interesting with a eye-popping increased survival. But there is some there is the ongoing Victus trial. And the Victus trial has enrolled patients in multi-centers, and the idea is to find out whether this therapy, which has been popularized by Paul Merrick and his group, is in fact useful. Uh, we need to be careful at this point. After there have been now hundreds of clinical trials involving many, many dozens of different approaches of various dysregulated pathways, and none of them have made things better, I think if any trial comes out tomorrow uh, showing a survival benefit, the likelihood that that result will stand the test of time and is going to tell us something new about sepsis is quite low. Um, here's where I think we need to, to take a Bayesian approach and take into consideration all of our prior knowledge. Um, it's not just that we have been looking in the wrong direction. We have been testing this idea of dysregulation. Every test by itself is an individual test that gets us closer to the idea about whether sepsis represents a dysregulated state or a regulated state. We now know, based on decades of research, a multitude of trials, well over 100 randomized clinical trials, many of which have been well done, and not a single therapy has stood the test of time. No brand new medications have resulted from this treatment strategy. Nothing. The time has come to reject the idea of dysregulation. This approach that I'm laying out here, it's a bit pessimistic. I'm saying nothing's going to work. But I'm saying nothing's going to work because it's based on a flawed premise. And it's a flawed premise of dysregulation. We can make progress in sepsis. We can make progress. We can make progress if we focus more on the underlying cause of sepsis, not the host response. We've been blinded to think that we are the enemy, not the invading pathogen. If we spend a little more time on the invading pathogen, we may actually come up with some remarkable, durable, more meaningful results that will stand the test of time. Looking at the role of the microbiome in sepsis is something which deserves a major second look. When we become sick and septic, we bring our microbiomes with us. The microbiomes undergo a massive change when it comes to getting antibiotics and a whole bunch of other drugs, and we fail to think about that. But it has been argued in the past that the gut, the microbiome, is the motor of sepsis. And I think that uh, there's increasing recognition that the microbiome participates in sepsis in meaningful and important ways. But focusing on the microbiome may be an area where we can have some massive improvements. Okay, I'll try to get this published before the end of January. 
and uh, it's good to have you all back on the podcast. The next one will involve uh, our frequent and wonderful co-host, Coffee Brown, and we'll be discussing some other advances in the field of evolutionary medicine. Exciting stuff going on. Really, there are there is more and more and more. There's more in this field, which is even now considered embryonic and small. There's more than I can even really keep up with as a practicing physician. So I'm not surprised that a lot of you perhaps may have missed some of the uh, most exciting stuff that's been published in the last uh, few months, but there's been a lot. So we'll have uh, ample time to go over that uh, in the coming months. And with that, I'll sign off and we'll see you next time.